Hi, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Prisons. I'm your co-host, Kim Wilson. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Dr. Kimberly Robertson for a conversation about her work on Native feminisms and practices. Her use of beadwork and zine making as ways to generate knowledge, the uncompensated emotional labor of Black and women of color in the academy, and doing liberatory work. Brian wasn't able to join us for this episode, but he will be back for the next one. Before I play the episode, I'd like to thank the folks that are supporting this podcast. We appreciate our current patrons and welcome our new ones. Your donation of $1 per month helps to make this podcast sustainable. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com backslash beyond prisons. If you can't support us financially, please consider sharing the podcast with the people in your life. We encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at beyond underscore prisons and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash beyond prisons podcast. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this conversation. I'd like to introduce Dr. Kimberly Robertson. Kimberly Robertson is a citizen of the Muscogee Nation, an artist, scholar, teacher, and mother who works diligently to employ Native feminist theories, practices, and methodologies in her hustle to fulfill the dreams of her ancestors and to build a world in which her daughters can thrive. She was born in Bakersfield, California, and currently lives on unceded Tongva lands. She is an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at California State University, Los Angeles. Robertson is also a founding member of the Green Corn Collective and a member of the Indigenous Goddess Gang. Her creative practices include screen printing, collage, beadwork, installation art, and zine making, and centers the ideas and practices of ceremony, storytelling, intersecting subjectivities, dislocation, decolonization, and indigenous futurities. You can find her work at KimberlyDawnRobertson.com and on Instagram at KDRSlays, S-L-A-Y-S, The Patriarchy. Welcome. Before we go ahead and jump into the conversation, I just want to do a check-in. How how are you? How you feeling? Um, <laughs> you good? I'm doing good. I'm nervous, but I'm good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. So, um, you know, you and I connected um, a while back, uh, doing you know um, our creative you know work, and I don't see these things as disconnected from my scholarship in any way. Um, even though I stepped away from the academy for uh, a few years, um, you know, I, I find that these, the creative side, the artist um, intersects quite nicely with um, the, the scholar in me. And I see a lot of that in the work that you're doing. And, um, you know, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the intersection of, you know, being a scholar and an artist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think, you know, for, so I'm Muscogee Creek. I identify as a native, I'm, I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Um, so a native woman and, and my, my 
journey through the academy has never been easy. It's always, um, you know, it's been fraught with with the difficulties that all people of color, um, and then and and particularly that women of color have trying to move through the academy. Mm. Um, <laughs> and you know, yeah. and it's a, it's that kind of a space that um, can be really dehumanizing at times. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also a space that I've. I give a lot of myself emotionally, intellectually, um, you know, a lot of spiritually, culturally, even. Um, I give a lot of labor to that space. And particularly my research, you know, I'm a first generation, I was a first generation college student. I, um, you know, so making my way through was, it was always like I was trying to reinvent the wheel, figure out how the entire academic system works, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, you know, I tell my students when I'm when I'm talking and I'm sort of sharing my educational journey with them that, you know, there were multiple moments that I wanted to leave the space. I wanted to drop out. I felt like an imposter. I felt like I wasn't good enough, like I didn't belong, like I couldn't be seen and heard in that space. Um, and it really wasn't until I started to do um, my work on violence against Native women that I, you know, that I began to kind of make a home in the academy. And, you know, so when I discovered that I could, you know, that I didn't have to go into the academy to learn these ideas that were completely um, foreign to me and to try to sort of really like, you know, change who I was, but really that I could go into the academy and, and receive tools for really being able to, to articulate and critically analyze um, my own life experiences, the experiences of, of um, my family, my community, you know, and my ancestors. Um, and so once I sort of discovered that, that literally I could use the academy as a space to really interrogate, theorize through, um, you know, and resist all these, that, that matrix of domination, you know, mm-hmm. colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, it, it was then that I sort of, you know, became more comfortable and I say that with like some hesitancy I'm still not comfortable in the academy um mm-hmm. and I frequently you know I frequently feel um dehumanized ostracized kind of um undervalued um and I you know and I'm frequently questioned I mean I recognize the arm you know I recognize education as a, as a tool of the state um mm-hmm. as an arm of the state while it also can be you know a tool for liberation and empowerment um mm-hmm. So, you know, my presence there is still kind of fraught with like a variety of tensions, but but I guess, again, it was when I started to really be able to use what, you know, what I, the, when I was able to find a home in women's gender and sexuality studies and in indigenous studies and in critical ethnic studies, critical race studies, um, when I started to find my place in those various fields and disciplines, then I started to, you know, realize how I could use those tools to, again, examine my own personal and political commitments in life. Um, and, sorry, where was I going with this? Was that, oh, so, so, so for me, that meant really examining um, the sexual and gendered violence that occurred mm-hmm. under colonization, you know, and violence um, has been a part, you know, unfortunately, is a, is, is a part of my, my, family's legacy or, or our, it's a part of our history. Um, it's something I cannot separate myself from. You know, when I move in the academy, I move as a survivor of violence. 
I move as a daughter of a survivor of violence, as a an auntie and a sister of survivors of violence. Um, and so, you know, once I was able to see that, okay, I can, I can't separate that component of my identity from, you know, say a scholarly or, or academic identity. I need to merge them, and really, I need to, to do, you know, start doing some of this work. Um, I started, you know, more formally researching, I guess, violence against Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that work was really empowering in a lot of ways because, again, it allowed me to name things. It allowed me to um, stop internalizing, so you know, to such a degree the kinds of, you know, the, the pathologization of, of mm-hmm. myself and my communities um, to stop, inter- you know. So it allowed me to name things and to theorize and in, in many ways then to start to, I guess, I'd always been resisting. We've always been surviving the violence, but ways to, I guess, more intentionally name and resist the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that work is really heavy. I mean, my head, 24 hours, you know, my, my personal life, my political life, my intellectual life was all invested in in examining and and resisting violence against Native women. And so for me, the art component came in sort of um, more recently, you know, within let's say within within the last decade or or so and it became really a way I had to have an outlet for processing some of all of you know all of that difficult work I was doing Um, I had to have a place where I wasn't just examining the damage that had been done Mm -hmm. but that I was also you know um, generating or creating um, the kind of world that that I wanted you know that I want to create and an alternative, right? And to gift to my daughters and the future generations um, and and to my community. And so I really just started started engaging more 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 seriously in art practices. I've always been very creative and I guess kind of, you know, drawn to art. I wouldn't define myself as an artist. I never took an art class. I never formally studied art. Um, you know, I took some art classes in community, but not like in my in my academic career or anything like that. Um, but I just, you know, realized that like for my own sanity and my own emotional and mental health, mm-hmm. I needed to be creative. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And so that's really where that work began. And then it just sort of, then it kind of, you know, so it began really as a, in a sense to, for, for self-preservation, but then I started, you know, the more that I was doing the work and I started to meet other people and I started to see you know, the power and the impact that art has um, mm-hmm. in educating folks and, you know, kind of democratizing, I think, access to knowledge and, and the creation of knowledge. And then I just started, you know, then I more intentionally built art making and creative practices into, um, I would say, my activist and academic work. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, wow, you've said so much. And um, I want to go back a little bit to um, something you said at the beginning here uh, regarding, you know, uh, finding a home in the academy, uh, something that resonates with me and I'm sure will resonate with a lot of people listening to um, to the podcast. But um, when did you find that home? Well, I think, well, you know, my story always tell, I also tell my students all the time, I actually have three master's degrees and a PhD. 
Um, yeah. And that happened. You know, and I'm a first generation student. That wasn't intentional. You know, it yeah. really was. Yeah. And I tell students, if I could have redo it, if I could have traded three master's degrees for a PhD, for one PhD, I would have, you know, but yeah. I didn't really know. I didn't have the, you know, I, I didn't have fabulous mentorship. Um, I had a couple of mentors that I, you know, and I definitely have, you know, at a later point, I found some academic aunties and, you know, and just academic relatives that literally, I think, sustain me and keep me alive in the academy. So I definitely don't want to um, imply that those relationships don't exist. But in the beginning of my journey, I couldn't find those things. And so I really didn't know what I was doing. Again, I was kind of reinventing the wheel at every step. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, I was, my, my, my academic journey wasn't intentional. It was just sort of bouncing around from place to place. Again, not really feeling at home, not feeling confident about my work in any particular place, um, mm -hmm. or feeling, or feeling, as a native woman, you know, not feeling seen in many of the spaces yeah. as well. Um, and so for me, it was really when I was at, U I, I, um, I ended up at UCLA, UCLA is where I did my, where I finished my PhD. And I had enrolled in a PhD program in, then it was called Women's Studies, it's now Gender Studies at UCLA. Um, but I really, at that point, there were not any indigenous identified faculty in that program. Mm. And I really, I found it really difficult. I felt like I was always trying to um, have to justify the value and existence of my work. And, you know, just at a very basic level as a Native woman, I was trying to explain, you know, to to professors and committee members, like, what tribal sovereignty meant or mm -hmm. you know what what why examining violence against native women might look different than examining violence against um other women of color or you know and so i really found my home in american indian studies so i that's how i ended up with one of my masters was just i was at ucla in gender studies but really not having my my needs met and so I was in all the AIS courses. I was, yeah. um, you know, and that's where I had community. That's where, yeah. you know, I worked on powwow. I worked to help, um, I worked with the American Indian Grad Student Association and, you know, did a variety of things. That's where I found mentors. I found some amazing, um, amazing Native women, Rebecca, Rebecca Rosser, or Rebecca Hernandez now, um, Deanna Rivera. I met some, you know, Native women that were, were more in staff positions than academic positions, but mm -hmm. that were absolutely critical to me being able to, to have, you know, to have the support system to stay. And once, once, you know, so I end up with an extra master's degree because I'm in, I take all the American Indian Studies courses and it's like, well, I might as well write the thesis as well, get the master's and it might become, you know, a component of my district or a, a, a section of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, and that really, you know, is when that's when I started to find the home, when I went to do that work very intentionally. Um, my master's thesis was I traveled to South Dakota and I worked with a lot of the aunties, um, the Native women that really I would consider sort of the grandmothers of of the indigenous anti-violence movement in the United States. Mm. Um, I went and spent time with women like Karen Artichoker, with Tilly Black Bear with Brenda Hill, 
um, some of these women that were really instrumental in not only creating the South Dakota um, Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, but also helping to create the national coalitions against mm-hmm. DV and sexual assault. And so I worked with them um, and I was able to really record an oral histories from them to hear their stories. I did interviews with them. They sat in rooms and shared um, really these, you know, very rich and very, very, very complicated and sophisticated, like analyses and, you know, detailing of, of how they developed their work and how they theorized violence against Native women and what that looked like on the ground. Um, and I was able to write that up for them and then, you know, and, and return it to them. And they were able to use that history um, in some of the legislation that they were working on and things like that. Um, so, you know, when I started to do that work, and again, it was, and it's kind of funny, now I'm saying it out loud and thinking it was, it was actually more about, I mean, so finding my home in the academy actually really meant realizing the degree that I could do community work in the mm-hmm. academy mm-hmm. that I needed to be able to do, to merge those two components of my world. Um, mm-hmm. And I was working with those women at the same time going through all of the anti-violence. Tra- there were, there used to be, um, there used to be an organization or a network titled uh, Sacred Circle. It was the, the national organization um, to and violence against Native women. And I took, I was taking all of their trainings and becoming um, an anti-violence advocate for Native women as well. So again, it just really allowed me to merge both like my activist and political commitment with my intellectual kind of, I guess, um, interest. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's incredible, but it also, you know, speaks to the way the Academy um, and, it, and we're not going to spend our whole time here talking about the academy, um, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I, I think it's important um, to to highlight, you know, how difficult the road was, and that it was pretty late in your um, educational, you know, um, career uh, when you actually started to find a home. I mean, and and the getting there is, you know, part of that story right the getting there and how difficult it was to find a place where you felt like you belonged where you felt seen um but where you could also do work that spoke to your lived experience and the lived experience of you know other people in your community right absolutely and i think you know again though to just say that you know i also teach um so my courses are primarily in Native feminisms. Um, I teach Native feminist theory and practices and genders and sexualities, I, women of color um, feminisms also. But I think but one of the courses that I teach and that I've done the most work in also is like Native or Indigenous feminist methodologies. Um, and really, you know, what I've come up against in the academy in terms of that is like, you know, even though, again, yes, I, I found a home in ways, I found a place for myself where I could sort of be seen, um, and I'm in the academy now, but mm-hmm. I constantly, you know, there is still that constant discomfort and that tension and just, you know, I mean, that age-old question that really Audrey Lord also, you know, asked, like, can, you know, can we employ the master's tools to dismantle the master's house? Um, Absolutely. 
you know, and the deeper that I get into conversations with my students around methodologies and around like the, the gatekeeping that goes on at mm-hmm. institutions and, and the way in which these institutions are really founded in genocide and slavery and capitalism, um, you know, you know, we, we become more, I think I almost become more and more conflicted um, as time goes on in terms of like, I think the potential to really do liberating work from within, from inside the academy. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I know, think that's a yeah. conversation. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Um, yeah, that's a conversation I have with so many so many people. Um, I have a lot of friends that are still in the academy. Um, I stepped away, was pushed out really um, about four years ago now. And, uh, you know, being outside really has given me a very different, um, a, a different perspective, you know, and it's not to say that, you know, I've found like you know the the answer or anything like that um Mm -hmm. but it certainly um helped shed light on many of the things that you've described in terms of your own experience um and that tension that I was feeling being in the academy as well right being uh you know a black woman in the academy being Latina in the academy um you know uh dealing with all of those things that you mentioned earlier, like, you know, imposter syndrome, uh, wanting to leave, you know, um, mm-hmm. how do you find a place to, that will allow you to articulate your experience? Um, because, you know, when you're doing research, um, the, the tendency in the academy is to focus on, you know, um, or we're taught in research methods, um, you know, to prioritize the, this notion that, you know, we're supposed to be unbiased researchers. And that's nonsense. I mean, that's, you know, pure bullshit when you're talking about, absolutely, um, you know, women of color, Native women, uh, Indigenous people, Black people, um, and, you know, and what have you, like, there's no separating, you know, your embodied identity, right, from the work that you're doing, the questions that we ask are different, the work that we, uh, you know, propose doing is different, we approach it differently. Um, and those things matter. And those things are not necessarily valued by an academy that wants to present itself as being, you know, race neutral, unbiased, um, and hence, you know, quote unquote, right in terms of the approach that we should be taking. As a dip, absolutely, you know, <laughs> I'm yeah, I mean, about this a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but and I think exactly what you're saying too. It not only is it impossible for those of us that are, you know, come from marginalized communities to, to divorce, you know, or to these knowledges and our experiences are, they are embodied. They're, they're felt They're Um, not only is it impossible for us to, to do that work, quote unquote, objectively, or, but I think also the most important thing, like you mentioned, is that it's, that it's, it's really just about keeping up a facade that any knowledge or research construction of knowledge is objective. I mean, there is certainly a capitalist objective in the business school. There is certainly, you know, 
or a, excuse me, a capitalist bias, um, mm-hmm. right? There's a bias in all this knowledge that's created, but absolutely that particular knowledges in the West get valued and get constructed as, um, as objective, as universal, as, um, you know, as, as being more, um, oh, I'm blinking, but and other knowledges get constructed as subjective, less valuable, um, political, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of the things on my, on my teacher evals, you know, I'll, I always get these, these evaluations at the end of the semester that say, this class was too political. This professor was too biased. Well, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it, it, we've normalized, you know, the way that students tend to read other courses. They could take, you know, they could take education courses. And I, you know, have a master's in education. I taught in a college of education. Um, I taught a number of different courses. And students take those things at face value. And they don't see education policy as political, which is. Right. What you know? And Absolutely. It, so if it's and it matters who's in front of the room. So if you're, you know, a, a black woman standing in front of the room, pointing out the problems with, you know, the term, you know, uh, let's say um, at risk youth, you know, something that mm-hmm. really grinds mm-hmm. my ears. Um, you know, or talking about urban. Um, I was just going to say, or urban education. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like, this is total language. If if a Black yes. woman points those things out or a woman of color is pointing those things out, you know, you get treated differently than if, you know, a white man stands up there and says, and they're like, oh my God, I didn't really realize that. That's so brilliant. And they think you've just like invented mm-hmm. the wheel or mm-hmm. fire or something. Um, so it's really interesting how, you know, these things sort of play themselves out and people wonder, you know, why the academy is not as diverse as it should be or why certain departments or fields are not, quote unquote, as diverse as they could be um, right. or should be. Uh, but, yeah, I think that, you know, something else that you touched on that I think is important uh, to talk about here is um, the emotional labor that many of us are have to perform, right, as we Mm -hmm. move through these spaces, which is not Mm -hmm. something that ends up in your, you know, (laughs) recontracting packet. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not something that is recognized as an important contribution. Um, And, you know, but it's something that we carry. I mean, the, the part where you describe, you know, how you had to do art like there was something that you know it pushed you in that direction because you needed to process everything that was going on and you know something that I talk about a lot and I do um a lot of art workshops and things like that in part because art has always been a part of who I am what I do um but I've also found it you know I've found solace in creating. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it is a way to, you know, when you're doing all this emotional labor um, for people that really don't care <laughs> about mm-hmm. your well-being, having something, a, you know, creating something beautiful in that space, um, in the midst of that, uh, as a way to not just survive, but thrive and also counter the kind of um, the, the, 
is it negativity the word I'm looking for? It could be something else. Some you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, like uh, that is such an important part of it. And I see that um, not only in the work that you know that you've done, and um, I've read uh, some of your uh, scholarship, so I'm familiar with um, with your work from that perspective. But I think it's also something that tends to be devalued because the academy doesn't necessarily see that as you know as important um and yeah yeah. lord we could go i guess we're going in on the academy today so that's okay (laughs) yeah well and i would just say you know i guess also this idea, like with emotional labor and, you know, not being convinced that the academy is, is necessarily a site, you know, that I'm, that I, I'm, that I'm seeing many spaces of liberation kind of flourishing right now. But on the other hand, you know, I'm there because of my commitment to Native youth and Native students. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have, Native communities have the lowest rates of educational attainment, um, you know, and, and so for me, another way to be, you know, again, so even, so when I'm teaching these, you know, frequently, I've been on a couple, I teach in the Cal State system, and I've been on a couple of the Cal State campuses. I've adjunct in a variety of spaces, but I've also um, had permanent positions at Cal State Northridge, and now I'm at Cal State LA. And in those, you know, in both of those campuses, you know, I find myself as one of literally, you know, less than five um, American Indian identified folks on the campus and, and, you know, one or one of the only one or two native women on the campus. Um, and so it does mean doing a considerable amount of, of, um, of mentoring and emotional labor and, and just, um, you know, working, really doing a lot of the heavy lifting of both, both representing native folks on the campus, but also making sure that I am really, um, taking care not taking care like in a in a in a condescending or sort of paternalistic kind of way but but taking care of i guess my relationships with native students on the campus mm-hmm. um and really being of service to them and one of the ways again that i think i've been able to make my courses more meaningful to them or i've been able to make some of my time more meaningful with them has been through creative creative projects as well um you know, I think that as Native students and other students of color as well, but as these as these Native students move through the university, um, you know, there's a small number of them as well. They're, you know, I think they also feel relatively alienated and isolated in most of their classes. I don't think really, you know, there are relatively few classes that value and privilege Indigenous ways of being in the world, Indigenous ways of thinking of you know mm-hmm. of creating of all sorts of things and so um in my courses i've really tried to bring some of that in so that th- those can be spaces where they're allowed to um you know where they're allowed again to bring their own felt and experienced and like cultural you know spiritual knowledges into the classroom and that they count for something you know and so my native feminism course and in my um my kind of anti-oppressive indigenous feminist methodologies course, we do bead work. Um, We literally, you know, we bead together. Um, They learn how to do DIY screen printing. We do a lot of zine making. Um, They do some community map. You know, I try to, 
I feel like the more creative assignments and creative um, or opportunities that they have to generate knowledge um, in different modes mm -hmm. rather than simply writing a research paper, um, yeah. it allows them to also, again, like, you know, for us to make better connections and for them to feel more validated within these spaces. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so that's been an important part of it for me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but I, mean, I, I would... I'm yeah, shaking my head at everything you're saying because you're taking me back. You know, um, I taught for 17 years and uh, some of the most, I think, impactful, memorable and transformative projects in my own courses, um, and not by my own estimation, but in terms of feedback that I've gotten from students, um, have been those creative projects. So projects that require them to, you know, yes, there's some writing, you know, uh, during the semester, um, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. really, you know, whether it's a creative presentation um, or, you know, painting or drawing or coming up with something else that doesn't sort of fit into that, um, the box of, you know, measurable outcomes yeah. that yeah yeah <laughs> be more fully human. With and said this is the way you should be evaluating your students in order to retain them and increase enrollment or what have you um but those are things that again i mean for for students and i've taught you know um students uh, across the spectrum i know you have your pretty diverse campus um that you know, uh, the impact of those kinds of, they're like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that you could approach this thing in this way. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's just such an incredible experience. And I, um, obviously this conversation, not, not about me, but it's apropos of, you know, what you were talking about uh, in terms of the beadwork. I did this um, critical ethnography uh, project with my students in a number of different courses. And at first I was like, uh, does this make sense to do in, you know, a team development course, for example? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that was in, in the College of Education. Um, mm -hmm. but I've also done that project in my humanities courses, right? And students yeah. were just, you know, embarking on this journey of self-discovery, but also trying to understand, you know, what they mean and what they imagine by, you know, this notion of community um, and, and really setting out on doing an intense research project on themselves, <laughs> basically, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. critical ethnography and asking questions of themselves that they never imagined, you know, asking and engaging in conversations with people that, you know, they've never had. And I, I remember one semester and, um, and I'll shut up and uh, go back to letting you talk <laughs> after this, because um, no. it was uh, this, you know, young white male uh, gave a presentation and, you know, he pretty much hemmed and hawed much of the semester. I didn't really, you know, want to engage, felt like this was kind of a ridiculous course and what have you. Um, and I don't know when it happened, but something happened that by the end, when he gave his presentation, he talked about 
you know, he'd had this black friend, right, that he'd known for many years. Um, but mm-hmm. he'd never talked about race with his black friend, right? And mm-hmm. for that project, he actually sat down and talked to his friend about his, you know, his black friend's lived experience, you know, in the world, living in, you know, um, a mostly white community, what that felt like, what it felt like going to school, what it, you know, what were the aspirations that he had? Like, I remember this, like it was yesterday, right? And this was years Mm -hmm. ago. Um, And by the end, I mean, this kid was like, I know I have a lot of work to do. He's like, I understand what you mean by white supremacy now. I understand that I have white privilege. I want to fix this. I want to do something about this. And I tell you, there wasn't a single student in that class, me included, um, that, you know, didn't cry at the end of that presentation. And it's not to, you know, Mm. we're not talking about giving white people cookies for, you know, just whatever, but he had really started digging in at some point over those 14 weeks and doing some really serious excavating in terms of his own um, experience, right? And that's not something I feel I could have gotten um, or that I would get from students if we did some other kind of project. If I just assigned a paper and said, write this 10-page paper and, you know, provide citations and all of that stuff. Like, I don't know. But anyway, that's you reminded me of that. And I wanted to share that with you because, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I love that story. I mean, I think Linda Tawaii Smith, a Maori scholar, talks about really, you know, has mapped that that relationship between between research and colonization and research mm-hmm. and imperialism. And and that really, you know, in the West, it, um, the institution of education is founded on this idea of like investigating the other, you know, mm-hmm. and getting to know the other so that mostly so that you can better control or, or um, you know, Man. the other and that you can dehumanize it, you can containerize it. And, and I think, so it's so important, I think, in our practices in the classroom that we are decentering that desire to, to, um, you know, to get to know the other and asking students to look internally at themselves. Um, and particularly when we're working with students with privilege, I mean, you know, a lot of the principles of anti-oppressive research is, you know, that you should really, you know, why is it that we have, um, or not asking why, we sort of know why, but bringing to light that there is this emphasis on um, researching marginalized people, researching mm-hmm. what we consider to be the problem or, you know, researching down, as we might call it. And so um, I'm thinking of, I can't think of the authors right now, but as research as resistance, um, in the text, research as resistance and anti-oppressive research, they're thinking about reversing that gaze and, and researching up, right? Like, mm-hmm. what does it mean? Instead of, instead of asking, you know, students with privilege, um, students who've never experienced incarceration, for example, or poverty or what have you, to look at those problems and to sort of, you know, attempt to know more about them. Why don't we ask them to research their own wealth or exactly. research, you know, their their, exactly. their family or their culture's participation in the prison industrial complex or, exactly. right, there's research probation officers, those that are in your family or, you know, the kinds of, and so I think it's really critical that we ask you know, we, that we do sort of turn some of these practices of, um, you know, of 
of othering folks and then putting a microscope on them that we sort of turn some of these and not in a in a harmful way but we ask students to to more more thoroughly investigate their own social conditions and locations um, mm -hmm. you know and how those may result in a privilege or oppression or you know depending on where they're situated absolutely absolutely yeah. i think that um yeah i mean i, I taught research methods, um, you know, and uh, my students were like, this is not your mom's research methods class, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mine too. They're like, wait a minute. <laughs> They're like, what are we doing here? You know, I know. very different, you know, approach. And obviously we'd go through and, you know, try to understand more traditional research methods, um, but also looking at those things with a critical lens and saying, okay, well, this is something that you're going to encounter over and over again, especially as your academic career progresses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of those students were it had intentions of going to, to grad school. Um, but here's some of the stuff that you're not going to encounter, right? Or that you're mm -hmm. unlikely to encounter unless you have, you know, a professor that is, who's, you know, interested in these things and this is their orientation and they want to um, present not, you know, a different way, um, different methodologies um, around, you know, understanding, um, you know, people, uh, community, society, the world. Um, yeah. There was, uh, let me see. Oh, I wanted, um, I wanted to ask you uh, in, in part because we've used this, uh, this terminology um, several times so far, uh, if you would mind defining Native feminism and Native feminist analysis, because I think that those are two really uh, important terms. Um, and I want to make sure folks have a sense for what we mean when we're talking about Native feminism. Definitely. Um... I think I would, you know, I would say first that it's, a, that, you know, that native feminisms are plural, that there's, uh, right, so, mm -hmm. so there isn't one particular strand. And I think particularly, um, you know, when we're talking about native peoples, we are, you know, that even that, I mean, even that descriptor is a little bit inadequate, right, because it really, it attempts to really homogenize a, a, like a huge diversity of peoples. And so mm -hmm. I think there are all sorts of, of um, native feminisms that, that, that come directly from, you know, tribal histories and tribal, tribal um, specific tribal conditions, uh, cultures, histories, knowledges, et cetera. Um, but I think like just sort of at a basic level, um, I think of native feminisms as, as, as feminisms that are concerned with the intersection of settler colonialism and heteropatriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, I think it builds, you know, from, there's a definitely an intersectional analysis there and it's in conversation with it, it builds from, and, and then sometimes departs from um, women of color feminisms and intersectional feminisms. Um, but I think that what native feminisms generally brings to the table is, is, the inclusion of needing to think through, or the addition of needing to also think through colonization when we're thinking mm -hmm. through, you know, for example, race, class, ability, um, et cetera. So those inter the, the feminisms that emerge from that intersection of colonization and heteropatriarchy. Um, I think when I say like a native feminist analytic, right, that is, that is, um, I think it's important that we don't only think of 
like other, again, like, you know, similar to uh, some, to other women of color feminism, but that we don't necessarily think of Native feminism as, as an identity politic, but rather as an analytic. So not only, mm. not only can Native women employ a Native feminist analytic, right? Non-Native mm. people, non-Native folks can certainly um, investigate the, the intersections of heteropatriarchy and settler colonialism. Um, and of course, you know, likewise, not all Native women identify as feminists. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important to point out too, right? Because um, again, like many other women of color, like there has been, you know, there, there, there have been a lot of hesitancies for Native women, or there have been times, and there still are debates, right, about whether or not Native women do want to identify um, as feminist um, because of the kinds of white supremacist histories that that the mainstream feminist movement has in this country um, mm-hmm. and the way that, you know, feminism can still be taught in a variety of contexts or it can still be articulated and employed, you know, even thinking about like the Women's March um, and some of the conversations and, and problematics around that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I sort of use Native feminist analytic then as a way um, as a way yeah to to point out some of some of those i guess those still in those kinds of still, uh, ongoing developments within the mm-hmm. field or within the practice i think that's the other thing you know is that native feminisms um i think again we want to talk about it as as theories and practices because although many native women um explicitly have have denied that term or not not claim the term feminist they have practiced and acted in ways that are all about um that are all about working for sexual gender um justice in in native communities and non-native communities Mm -hmm. um and you know in ways that are that are about um really really centering Native women, Native queer, two-spirit, non-gender binary people, um, and and thinking through, you know, for me, a big part of that work, too, has been, like I mentioned earlier, is looking at the way in which settler colonialism um, and heteropatriarchy, when they combine with one another, that they result in gendered and sexual violences um, against Native communities. Mm -hmm. And so really trying to think through to think through the way for me and at a variety of levels. So the way in which native women in particular were disempowered continue to be targeted for elimination, um, right? The violence against native women in the U S is, is, um, or native women are victims of violence, um, it, to a higher degree than any other population in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but it also means really looking at the disappearance and elimination of um, queer, two-spirit, non-gender, binary Native mm-hmm. folks. I think it also, right, it, there's um, the development of a lot of conversations around Indigenous masculinities and the way in which white supremacist heteropatriarchy has, um, you know, conceived of native masculinity in very particular ways and in ways that have been detrimental to to native communities um yeah and then finally just sort of for me it's about looking overall at the ways in which 
under colonization, heteropatriarchy has also really, really fractured our, our understanding of and ability to retrieve native ways of just under conceptualizing gender, sexuality, and, and kinship, you know, relationships mm-hmm. between peoples more broadly. Yeah. Wow. Um, absolutely. Uh, and you said <laughs> there's just so much. Um, and I'm, I know. I'm sorry. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, there's just so much. I'm, uh, I'm looking at the time and I want to respect your, your time. Um, but you know, I, um, I recently read your article, um, you know, your 2016 article, uh, the law and order of violence against native women and native feminist analysis of try of, the Tribal Law and Order Act. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, as a good student, I uh, took a lot of notes on that <laughs> um, article, but there were so many uh, different things uh, or issues um, and points that you raise in there. And um, I don't know if you have um, some time or if you could give us, you know, a quick, um, you know, uh, a quick and dirty um condensed version of, you know, what your central argument um, was in that, you know, in writing that, uh, that piece, because I think it's important to the entire conversation that we've just had, um, but also helps to contextualize um, a lot of the things that you just mentioned regarding, um, you know, settler colonialism, heteropatriarchy, um, and indigenous future uh, futures as well. So I think that, yeah. yeah, if you, you know, if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit um, and also, and I'll, I'll throw this in there if you want to, you know, as a sort of signpost, um, if you want to talk about this, um, how that article and your analysis of that um, sort of, you know, uh, connect, if they do at all, with um, your notions of, you know, prison abolition and dismantling, you know, the the prison industrial complex, because I think that those things are, um, are at least in my thinking, are related. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You know, that article, so I wrote that article, um, and it was specifically looking, as you mentioned, at the Tribal Law and Order Act, but it also builds off of some um, work that I had done previously about the Violence Against Women Act. Mm -hmm. And um, so in my work on violence against Native women, right, and as I was sort of tracing the genealogies of the way in which Native women have mobilized against the violence committed against us, I found, you know, so I, I read that in relation to the mainstream anti-violence movement. And from the development, you know, or the emergence of the mainstream anti-violence movement in roughly the 70s, you know, a primary a primary um, strategy for addressing violence has been to appeal to law, appeal to the state to mm-hmm. address, right, to address the violence. And so when we had the Violence Against Women Act passed, I think when was it passed the first time was in 1994, I believe. Um, so when the Violence Against Women Act was, yeah, it was it was passed in 1994 under Clinton. And um, one of the things, right, so that was, the, it was a really important act because it was the first time, right, in, in legislation mm-hmm. sort of publicly that the United States really 
um, acknowledged the pervasiveness and the severity of violence against women and made, right, made, um, provided resources to, to address that issue. But when that, and, and I just want to say, right, so in that first, and again, this is in the history of looking at the anti-violence movement in the United States, we frequently, we talk about right this development and what is excluded always is the degree to which native women were instrumental in that act being passed mm -hmm. and in fact many of the aunties that i already mentioned um interviewing up in south dakota and such right um they they literally were at the table from the very beginning some of the earliest meetings um that or yeah meetings that that eventually led to the creation of the national coalition against violence against women and then and then and then the act eventually those early meetings even occurred like on indian land um mm. in south dakota and so you know this is a really important part a, a really important component of that that historical narrative that is usually left out um but so from the start native women were at the table and native women were really instrumental in um in getting this important legislation passed but what i write you know and so so when i write about the tri tri tribal law and order act i really am looking at the various pieces of legislation since 94 that have been that have been developed um right in an effort to address violence against women generally but then violence against native women in particular mm -hmm. and of course like you immediately i mean you know you hit the nail on the head already like so from the get-go in terms of legislation certainly um the development of these legislations work hand in hand with also the development and growth of the prison industrial complex and you know that first violence against women act it was actually attached to the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that mm -hmm. really, right? That that yeah. act was considered like the toughest, um, you know, uh, or what the it was considered, you know, it still is described as sort of one of our um, one of our toughest like crackdowns on crime. It instituted mm -hmm. the three strikes law. Um, mm -hmm. It deported a ton of folks, right? And so. So from the get-go in the U.S., I think we've had these we've had these tensions around around um, how right. Well, and I think particularly. And so, okay, let me back up. So when that when that law was passed, immediately we had women of color feminists, Kimberly Crenshaw, among others, coming mm -hmm. forward and saying, "Wait a minute, this is really problematic because in our effort to you know to receive some kind of acknowledgement and support from the state where also simultaneously then the state is further incarcerating and criminalizing our communities mm -hmm. and so you know women of color get positioned in this right it's between a rock and a hard place there mm -hmm. um i think there's also a way and again i'm not the only the, the first person to say this this is building off the work um specifically i would say of black feminist critiques um and others but Right, this idea that um, some of the work that's done through that was done through insight, some of the work mm -hmm. that still is being done through critical resistance, right? But really thinking about, you know, when when we when our strategy is to appeal to the nation state in that way, there's a way that we are also um, we also 
are hiding the or not hiding is not the right word, but there's a way that we that the state becomes absolved as a perpetrator of violence mm -hmm. because we position the state as one who will mitigate that violence or who mm -hmm. will help us to address the violence. And so yeah. again, women of color saying, you know, violence against women is not does not solely occur at an interpersonal level it also it occurs at, and and more frequently occurs at the state level mm -hmm. um, and so yeah so you know we've had these these critiques have been being developed for years and my work was specifically again attempting one to unearth the 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 native contributions to that work and really think about the heavy lifting that Native women were doing and why they had always been sort of erased from the narratives of anti-violence mobilization. Mm -hmm. um, but then sort of my second component and, and my second motivation for doing that work was to also, was again, to address this issue of state violence mm -hmm. and to, to really ask, you know, when we, when Native folks, um, in particular, when we look to the nation state for for acknowledgement to a, for grieve, to you know to make grievance claims to witness our pain you know that really the nation state requires us to demonstrate our pain and to demonstrate e they were they really limit who is even considered native in the first place yeah. in order to be able to speak from a native um to speak from a native positionality mm -hmm. and um, and they require us, right, to like demonstrate our pain in ways that actually, I argue, um, actually perpetuate and fall into the settler state's overall goal to eliminate indigenous peoples. Absolutely. Um, you know, and so for that, you know, in that piece in particular, I was, I was saying, and again, not to dismiss or minimize any of the work because you know i think all of us that work in um that work in these movements you know we're aware that we need multiple strategies right. and certainly right when the violence against women act or the tribal law and order act it does offer some services um for native women who have been victims of violence or you know there's a, a variety of services that do become available under these acts. And so I don't want to say that those aren't important. Um, you know, as a survivor of violence myself, if you need access to a shelter, you need access to a shelter, regardless of the fact that the settler state ultimately is paying for that shelter, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or what have you. So again, and, and I don't want to be at all dismissive of, of again, the aunties that, you know, my native aunties that have done this work. But one of the things I was trying to investigate was from my position as an urban Indian woman, I am enrolled in my tribe, but I don't live on, I don't live within my tribe's jurisdiction. I live in Los Angeles, but my, my peoples are originally from the Southeast and were then forcibly removed to Oklahoma and the Muscogee Creek Nation now, um, now exists in Oklahoma and I'm in LA. Mm. And so I was trying, I was trying to think through in what ways does the do these federal pieces of legislation in what ways do they um do they rely on definitions of indianness that are really prescriptive and limiting and right if ultimately the settler state's goal is to eliminate native peoples so that it can justify 
the theft and the illegal occupation of land. Um, and it can justify the very existence of the U.S., right? If ultimately it's goals to eliminate Native peoples, you know, we can trace through through federal Indian history the various ways that the nation state has tried to do this. Um, and it, sometimes it's been full-out war, genocide, massacre. Um, and in other ways, you know, I, I argue that one of the ways, and I'm not the only one, I build off of a variety of Native scholars' work, but, you know, arguably another way this has been done has been legislatively, legally. Absolutely. And so I was really trying to look at, like, when we look to the nation state as a solution to our violence, at what cost is mm -hmm. that? What, you know, so what Native peoples become, you know, and this gets kind of like technical into federal recognition and the way in which the settler state recognizes Native folks, but what Native peoples become kind of these authentic and um, even kind of deserving subjects of of the state and deserving of having these resources, and then what Native peoples become excluded from this, and 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 how, in terms of thinking through Native futurities, um, does that again does that result in 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 indigenous life and futurity, or does it result in settler futurity and settler mm -hmm. life? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and does it allow that? Does it does it confirm and reinforce the settler state's, um, you know, preoccupation with with defining who Native people are, so that they can constantly be um, eliminating and 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 eradicating those people who can identify as Native? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you know, something else that stood out to me as I was reading this, and you, you say this in the piece that, you know, part of it is, um, you know, um, the ways that this uh, act um, diminishes tribal sovereignty, perpetuates the ongoing encroachment of tribal jurisdiction, regulates the boundaries of native, native identity and limits our ability to envision and enact Practices, uh, practices of decolonization. Um, you know, another piece that, you know, stood out for me um, was that it's, um, it's also important to acknowledge the, that anti-violence work and abolition work have not always, you know, um, it have had an antagonistic relationship <laughs> or antagonistic. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Absolutely. And that's embedded in, you know, in, in the analysis, right? So if we're talking about, you know, um, decolonization um, and, you know, uh, and what have you, um, thinking through, you know, thinking through this antagonistic history and figuring out um, a path forward, right? Like, how do we... Um, how can we make this anti-carceral, right? What does an anti-carceral right. future look like um, given the things that you've outlined? And that was something that, you know, uh, it just kind of struck me as I was reading uh, the piece because I said, okay, this is really um, important analysis and does contribute to um, the, the conversation uh, in significant ways uh, and introduces, you know, a way of, reading and understanding, um, evaluating, assessing um, the the history of state and federal 
laws in relationship to uh, Native and, and Indigenous people uh, in this country. But also, you know, if we're relying on carceral logics, um, how how can that work be liberatory, right? So this kind of takes us back to something we talked about at the beginning in terms of, you know, working within specific frameworks. And you mentioned Audre Lorde, which, you know, is always, you know, not far from, you know, what I'm thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if you have some something to say about that. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It's um, to put my thoughts together. I think, I think while I hear you and I certainly, I, I hear you and I, I definitely agree, right? The, antagon- the, the way that you're, you're saying that frequently these two projects, the project of eradicating um, sexual and gender violence and then the pro- project of, of abolition have, you know, are seemingly at odds and there have been, um, and yes, I mean, I certainly agree. They have been positioned at odds. Um, but when I think about Native you know, one way I think about answering this question is when I think about the Native um, scholars that are doing this work, when I think of the, the Native, a lot of the Native scholars that have been, or activists also, these, they don't even all identify as scholars, but when I think of the folks that are doing work in investigating the mass incarceration of Native peoples, a lot of them are also doing the work of looking at sexual and gendered violence against mm-hmm. Native women. Um, you know, and so I would go immediately to some some of those aunties whose work I am, you know, am hugely, I rely on hugely, um, and that my work wouldn't be possible without. It would be Luana Ross. Um, she wrote Inventing the Savage, The Social Construction of Native American Criminality, mm-hmm. um, you know, and specifically is looking at, is specifically looking at that basically colonization the, the history of colonization is a history of imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, and she looks at, you know, Native peoples were confined in boarding schools, orphanages, jails, prisons, reservations, you know, on and on, and sort of looks at all of these institutions as institutions of inc- mass incarceration. Um, I think of Stormy Ogden um, and Stormy's work. Stormy is a um, formerly incarcerated Native woman, and and, you know, she... Her work very specifically, you know, looks at, theorizes uh, from a position, right? She really is employing her felt and embodied experiential knowledge of incarceration and theorizing through, again, um, the long imprisonment of Native peoples, but also thinks as a California Native woman, she's also thinking about that relationship between imprisonment and missionization Mm -hmm. um, and the missions in California and, you know, her work's phenomenal. I think of, oh my gosh, who else am I? Deborah Miranda, um, another California Native woman, and Deborah Miranda's work, uh, she's, you know, doing all kinds, but again, really critically thinking through through the legacy, um, missionization, incarceration, um, and like these legacies of violence that, that we have in our communities and how fr- they, again, result in sexual and gendered violences. Um, and, and so these native feminist um, scholars and activists are all, you know, they're they're really working there at the intersection of these two movements. And I think so. I think when you you know when you ask like moving forward, what could that look like? I think immediately of also 
anti-violence, indigenous anti-violence activist, Sarah Deer. She's Muskogee. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sarah Deer, she's done a ton of work with the Violence Against Women Act. Um, she's a lawyer. She's a scholar. She's an activist. She's just all around ma- amazing. And the book she recently, she's published many things, but the book she re- recently published, The Beginning and End of Rape, um, Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America, and one of the ways that she theorizes through, or theorizes maybe sort of out of this place, is by really arguing that we need to situate our, we need to locate, for Native folks at least, we need to locate our anti-violence movements and efforts um, in our tribal histories and in our tribal identities and knowledges and really outside of the nation state. You know, she really argues that we have, mm-hmm. we our histories, you know, we we already um, oh these these knowledges may have been stolen from us, but we certainly have had we existed prior to the creation of the nation state, mm-hmm. and we actually had far, far I mean we had relatively little sexual and gendered violences. Um, we did not incarcerate folks, and so we have we've always already had tools and other. Um, legal system, knowledge systems, just sort of cultural practices, you know, ways in which we dealt with incidences of violence that didn't result in incarceration. And mm-hmm. um, many of those have been stolen from us. But again, you know, can we, how can we move, not move back and like to a romanticized path, mm-hmm. but can, you know, can we bring some of those knowledges um, into the future with us? And so I guess, you know, for for just more largely non-Native folks too, I think a lot of it just is maybe goes back to that creativity, you know, that you're talking about. Like what are, like, I think we need to think more creatively about how we can look for solutions to the violence outside of the state mm-hmm. and the state, right, outside of the carceral system. Yeah, yeah. No, that absolutely. has been, that was put in place, particular, you know, that carceral system was put in place, um, specifically to, to, um, yeah, specifically to, right, control and eliminate and dehumanize our people, to, mm-hmm. to disempower us, to, um, yeah, to, to just, to ameliorate our sense of humanity that would allow us to kind of, you know, work together and think through these issues and move out of these crises, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I hopefully, um, didn't mean to suggest that, you know, there weren't practices in place um, before oh, no, no, no. Yeah. of the state. And, you know, uh, many of us are familiar with this uh, work. Um, we did uh, um, an episode on um, pod mapping and the work of Mia right. Mingus uh, in terms of, you know, transformative justice um, a couple months ago. Uh, so there are a lot of practices in transformative justice, which has been co-opted as well, um, and restorative justice, which is part of the critique of, you know, um, of restorative justice approaches that are happening now, because these things had been stolen uh, from Native and Indigenous um, peoples and communities. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just so much, (laughs) there's so much there for like, 10 hours and, you know, (laughs) not um, stale, but um, yeah. Do you have anything, you know, uh, any final thoughts, anything that you didn't say that you'd like to say? Oh, I don't think so. Um, 
think I'm, you know, I'm really thankful to have been, you know, have the opportunity to dialogue with you. And I'm just, um, I think, I mean, maybe the final thing would be about the, the jail bed drop that we both participated in mm-hmm. and, and just thinking a little bit about, I think, um, well, maybe not. <laughs> I'm like my, my brain's starting to be tired now, but, um, but I think, yeah, no, I, I hear you. I'm not, I'm definitely also not implying that those, those um, alternative and creative forms, there's, you know, resistance all over. And there's a lot of ways that communities are addressing these issues without relying on the state. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways it just means maybe, um, you know, it means sort of holding those examples up and, and trying, you know, to just constantly developing, I don't know, our strategies of resistance, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to talk about the jail bed drop, please go ahead. I mean, I think that, you know, that it's in part how we connected. Yeah. You know, I think what I found to be really moving about the jail bed drop was it was a moment both for, um, it was a moment for collaboration with mm-hmm. older, with other folks from folks from other communities. Um, and for us to really kind of, you know, work together and think through, critically think through even just the representation of mass incarceration itself um, and how we could kind of expand that. But I think, you know, what I found most generative out of that also was the way in which we mobilized creative practices um, so that, again, um, these became spaces that we weren't just sort of intellectually theorizing an issue or we weren't also, um, you know, protesting an issue only, but we were also, I think there were spaces that, of healing, um, of, of, of being able to process um, some of, again, like those embodied insult knowledges of incarceration, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it was really, I think really, really amazing for those of us that were able to participate in in that way and there was um again a way that we couldn't we couldn't divorce like our felt experiences from our intellectual knowledges about it you know when we i remember the first night when we walked into the room where all of the jailbirds were in the warehouse and just the overwhelming feeling of um i mean it was just heavy it was an intense a really intense moment to to be in that space and to just sort of realize um, again just the severity and the heaviness of the issue at hand and that we we weren't going to come at this from from a purely like intellectual academic or even activist necessarily sort of um, mind frame or position but that we were also going to engage as as human beings with one another um, emotionally spiritually culturally those kinds of things yeah 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 and the the event that um we did at uh csula um yeah where you had you know your classes i um was one of the the speakers there that was also a really moving and healing kind of space so challenging people to think about um, the jail beds and, you know, this notion of mass incarceration, which I'm increasingly finding 
problematic and it doesn't really quite capture um the mm. the problem uh it's just become it's just become a term that we're using um you mm. know out there mm -hmm. but uh for lack of a better term at the moment um yeah i think that you know uh I know I spoke about my experience, not just with my academic work regarding uh, incarceration and its impact on communities by way of reentry, but also my own personal experience and, you know, what the bed and, you know, your classes um, are the ones who did that work. So I don't want to give the illusion that I am taking any credit for any of that work um, that, that you and your students did, um, because I think that, you know, it was really uh, phenomenal. And correct me if I'm wrong, that is uh, an, a permanent exhibit? It Well, it was a semi-permanent exhibit. Okay. It was up for the fall semester, yeah. So it was up from August until December in the, in the library at Cal State LA. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, and just thinking through again like that, you know, even engaging with with that topic, um, I think in the academy, or just the way you're saying that even the way that mass incarceration has become this term that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily encapsulate like everything we want and it doesn't, you know, really work to describe, I think it can, it can become just sort of a phrase that, that becomes untethered to actual bodies and experiences mm -hmm. and and real people and you know so just doing that project with my students you know it's one thing to say that we're going to study mass incarceration um you know but it, it's another thing again like in the academy sort of objectively or or imagining that none of us have a relationship to it it's another thing to be working you know on, on the campus in cal state la i mean with a carceral capital of the world and um, and we're, we're a campus of, of primarily students of color, mm -hmm. most of which, most of whom, whose lives have been touched by incarceration. Um, yeah. And so, you know, again, like, how do we have these conversations and do this work um, without traumatizing or re-traumatizing people? Mm -hmm. And, you know, really thinking, you know, again, like, what, what does it mean for a student to come into my class and then have to work on a jail bed project when I don't know their lived experience with imprisonment outside of my mm -hmm. classroom, you know? And so trying to do that, I feel, you know, it, definitely there's still problems. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily think the jail bed project is a solution to thinking through all of those things. But for me, it was a moment again, that allowed us to more creatively and more fully humanly explore these issues mm -hmm. and dialogue with one another than just simply like sitting at a desk talking about scholarship or, exactly. um, you know, or, or even just having, mm -hmm. even, you know, in my courses, I always have community members come in um, and speak. Cecilia came in and gave a couple of um, talks in a couple of my classes. And so I'll have community members that are doing the work also come into the space but it's very different, I think, from asking the, you know, from from really doing student-centered um, yeah. work that allows them to feel invested and empowered in their own, you know, um, just processing and moving through, thinking through these issues. Um, and ultimately, like, you know, the youth have got it going on anyway. So um, at this point, it's it it I feel like my work is just really to support their work. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that space, I think doing that at the university was also 
it was really important. And I think again, for the for the formally incarcerated students on campus, or those students on campus whose whose families, communities, um, where they have these you know very um, intense relationships with incarceration, to be able to see themselves validated, represented on campus like that, um, that these issues were being talked about and being, and that we held space in the library. I mean, there were over a hundred students when you all came to campus mm -hmm. and did that dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and for us to just literally take packed. up that space. Yeah. <laughs> the lobby was packed and people who were passing through, I mean, for people not familiar with this space, we were in the lobby like not in a room or anything like that. We were in the lobby. So if you were coming in any of the doors, you, we were there and we had a mic yeah. and we were all, you know, uh, those were us who were there uh, to talk. We were just talking to, you know, not just the, the students that were there, but anyone else who was within earshot of, you know, what we had to say. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had, you know, a number of, uh, conversations following that um, that event um, that you know continue to today, and just very recently yeah. met up with someone who was there. Um, uh, when when did we do that in August? Was it September? I don't remember. Yeah. Um, it was October, you know, September or October. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a while ago. Um, but, you know, it's like still going back and, you know, um, the processing, you know, so the processing, it, it's it's a place to begin the conversation. It's an access point. You got to begin somewhere. And um, yeah, I, I thought that that was and I got, you know, you and I got to connect um, as well. So that was, you know, tremendous uh, thing that that happened. And came out of that, at least for me. So I really appreciate, Definitely. Um, I really appreciate all your work. I don't want to take up, um, you know, uh, all of your day. I know, uh, you know, this is, you have a full course load and a lot of other things on your plate. So I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to take up all your time today, but I really appreciate <laughs> you being here. And I look forward to um, many more conversations, not just on the podcast, but, you know, uh, deepening our friendship off, you know, off air. And uh, yeah, I'm in LA, by the way. So I'm in LA until next month. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I saw, I just got, saw that email this morning, but let's, um, Let's connect. I'd love to grab coffee or something. So I'm yeah. gonna, I'll send you. I'm gonna glance at my schedule and I'll send it and see what your schedule looks like. Um, but yeah, yeah, thank you for, thank you for the dialogue. It's really, um, it's great to just yeah to be able to set aside some space and actually um, prioritize thinking through and having these conversations. It's so easily easy to just like do running, running and get lost and not yeah. even yeah. sometimes following up on those on the you know, the new relationships that do get formed in this work. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get together, do some painting or beading or something. For I would sure. love, yeah. I would love to do that. Um yeah, we're we're doing a lot of, you know, um similar or at least complementary kinds of work. So um yeah, let's see what we can cook up there. But um thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.